you really want to get to that recovery stage so that you're putting those funds back into an asset forfeiture fund or you're giving them back to victims. A lot of the time we hear the headline, the flashy headline of like the really cool seizure that just happened, but it's the follow-up where it really counts to make asset forfeiture programs work. Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Every so often I hear about a big law enforcement success. You know what I mean. Some major criminal has been arrested, and often the police have seized their cars, houses, drugs, guns, cash, and of course more and more regularly their crypto. But have you ever wondered what happens to all that stuff? Well, my guest this week has the answer. I'm pleased to speak with Joanna Summers, who's the Chief Recovery Officer at Asset Reality. She built her career first working with the U.S. Marshals Service, handling complex asset forfeitures. And she actually wrote the handbook on recovery of digital assets. Today, in her role with Asset Reality, she's bringing that experience to governments around the world and helping them adopt the Asset Reality platform to more effectively manage recovery and disposal of digital assets. One thing before we jump into the episode, you're probably already seeing all the hype on social media. Our team at Chainalysis has just released our 2024 Crypto Crime Report. It's over 100 pages of industry-leading insights discussing everything from record high ransomware attacks to the latest on scams and money laundering. And if you love that report, then you must absolutely join us at the Chainalysis Links Conference, which is just around the corner, happening April 9th and 10th in New York City. The event has sold out two years in a row, so if you're considering attending, I highly recommend you buy your ticket today. As usual, you can find the link to buy tickets to the conference and to download the Crypto Crime Report in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Public Key. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Today I'm joined by Joanna Summers, who is the Chief Recovery Officer at Asset Reality. Joanna, welcome to the show. Good morning, thank you for having me, Ian. I have to ask, what is a Chief Recovery Officer and how does one become that title? (laughs) So I run client relations here at Asset Reality. I help countries with their professional services like managing and disposing of all different asset types. I help them build their asset forfeiture programs by developing their standard operating procedures and also implementing our platform use. So that's a little bit of what I do externally as a chief recovery officer. Internally, I'm helping our team by providing some feedback on our platform development and um, meeting with various crypto exchanges, discussing partnerships and integration opportunities. So a little bit of a unique title, but you know, maybe it will become more common as the FATF recommendations are starting to be followed more. It sounds like a really exciting job. We're going to unpack all of the things that you talked about there as we get into it. But I noticed on LinkedIn, before joining Asset Reality, you spent a long time at the Justice Department. Tell us about what you were doing there. Sure. So I was at the U.S. Marshal Service Asset Forfeiture Division, and I started in the Complex Assets Unit in about mid-2013. And my role was working on any type of ongoing business or complex financial instrument that was subject to federal forfeiture. So it could be all across the board from gas stations to franchised restaurants, hotels and motels ranging from ones that need to be torn down and just resold as real property 
property, all the way up to Le Hermitage Beverly Hills Hotel in the 1MDB case. In terms of legacy work, we were valuing or ascertaining if there was any value to some of the Madoff LLCs. So that was really the background when I first started. But before the end of the year, we had our first Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency program took off from there. Wow, that sounds amazing. Before jumping into digital assets, I want to talk a little bit there because I'm fortunately have never had the marshals tell me I needed to forfeit any of my assets. What's the scenario where that would happen? I've been convicted of a crime and then everything that I own gets sold off. Like what what's a scenario where you would you would be brought in? Sure. So one of the seizing agencies like an FBI or a DEA, let's say DEA would have a drug case. And in that case, they have found the proceeds of crime include a Ferrari, a Rolex, some mansions and some business interests that the defendant, you know, thinking like Breaking Bad had moved their money into the car wash, let's say, which is actually the impetus for a lot of the franchise restaurants that we had seen. FBI determines or they suspect me of committing a crime. I'm arrested, charged. I go to court. At that point, are you getting involved or is it after conviction where a seizure and recovery would kick off? So ideally, you want to be involved as early as possible. We talk a lot about pre-seizure planning. Pre-seizure planning is so important, especially on the complex asset side of the house. If you're talking about taking over a business, you need to be prepared to have that business managed so that day-to-day operations can continue. So the marshal service would come in in that custody and management phase, but ideally you're involved with the U.S. Attorney's Office on the front end and the seizing agency on the front end to have a game plan before the seizure happens. In the case of like a restaurant franchise where you've got a number of locations, are you going in and like running payroll and hiring and firing employees who are working the cook line or serving food in the restaurant? Yeah, ideally, absolutely not, because (laughs) that type of workload is just not sustainable. Um, You know, for a federal agency, it's one case of many. So the idea is that you've got a management company in place that's handling those day-to-day operations for you, especially in a lot of the hotels. I I would get, say, a weekly report on the financials, anything that's significant that had occurred on the property. And then you're looking at like a monthly call with management to kind of review how the month went and see what's on deck for the next month. So it's more of that management capacity. If you want to be overseeing the contractor, you need an idea of what you're looking at, you know, maybe to be able to read some financial statements or have a general idea of the industry. But ideally, you're not involved in any of that day-to-day work because you probably have hundreds of cases on your desk to get through. Yeah, I would imagine that would be tricky. And is the ultimate goal to actually then sell the asset off? Or is the government actually operating like all of the franchise restaurants in my neighborhood and I don't, I don't know it. <laughs> no, the goal is absolutely to sell the assets as soon as you've got that court order authorizing you to do so. So it's actually one of the most tracked metrics is, is it forfeited and has it been disposed of yet? Is that aged inventory it's called? You, you really want to make sure you're following that process as quickly and efficiently as possible. So no, you're not sitting on assets or playing the market just because, hey, there's a stock in this brokerage account I really like 
and I think it's going to go up in value, so I'm going to hold on to it for three more months. That's not the idea. The idea is to follow the process. And to your point, you really want to get to that recovery stage so that you're putting those funds back into an asset forfeiture fund or you're giving them back to victims. A lot of the time we hear the headline, the flashy headline of like the really cool seizure that just happened, but it's the follow-up where it really counts to make asset forfeiture programs work. I was going to say, I think a lot of people assume government seizes a car or a restaurant or maybe a hotel in the example you gave earlier. And then after they've sold it on, that money stays with the government. But that's not usually the case, right? Yeah. So a variety of things can happen when the funds go into an asset forfeiture fund. They could go back to a public service, such as building highways, building roads, building hospitals or schools. They could be put into building a new rehab facility. So there's a variety of uses that they're used for. Law enforcement training would be another big one. And then in the case of victims, you do have the availability for victim restitution. So paying back victims' proceeds of crime. Amazing. You said earlier that about a year in into your job was the first time you ever encountered cryptocurrency. Had you heard about crypto or had any familiarity with it before it came up in the work context? So I had vaguely heard of it in 2013. We all kind of knew what it was in our unit, but we hadn't had a chance to really dive into it and look into it further until we got that call. And it was like, hey, you're getting cryptocurrency and you're going to have to sell it pretty soon. So that's when the deep dive into researching the best custody management and disposal methods started. Can you share what case that was back in 2013? Yeah. So we started off with a pretty big one. It was the Silk Road case. Okay. That was going to be my guess. Yeah. And the order was entered in January of 2014 to sell the assets. So there were four separate sealed bid auctions that we held across 2014 and 2015 to sell about 175,000 Bitcoin that were seized from the Silk Road servers and the defendant. And we kept that auction model going in a variety of cases through March of 2018, maybe 2020, as we developed the program. So by the time you left Marshalls, it sounds like pretty robust program in terms of how how to handle virtual assets. Yeah, absolutely. By then, we had started to see a variety of currencies. It wasn't just Bitcoin anymore. And that's something that we've heard around the world is, you know, we've got all these different currencies and how do we manage all of them? Like we thought we figured it out because we figured out Bitcoin, but now we're having more and more currencies to manage and not every exchange allows us to liquidate them. So like, what do we do from here? How did you handle, you said you had to figure out custody pretty quickly when this first case came up. Like what was the solution back then and did that change over time? So the solution back then was cold storage. The Mt. Gox exchange had just collapsed. So there was a lot of fear over using any type of centralized exchange to store the currency. And I I would say that's changed over time in the sense that there's just more options now. And that's one of the things that we have built into our platform is that flexibility to use a variety of cold storage methods, a variety of exchanges, and, and a variety of platforms to really be able to handle anything that comes our way. So even the Marshall Service believes in not your keys, not your coins? Is that what Abs- I'm hearing? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's a message we uh, try to preach around the world. Yep. <laughs> now, it sounds like it was an amazing job. What led you to joining the Asset Reality team? So I was fortunate enough in my government career to not only work with U.S. agencies, but to speak to a lot of agencies internationally, especially once crypto became more prominent. It was a lot of the same questions 
clients internationally. And I saw the need for a comprehensive seized asset management platform that included monitoring cryptocurrency. And I really wanted to help build that platform. And I really wanted to help countries around the world improve their asset forfeiture programs. So speaking with Aiden and with Asset Reality, it was very similar to a private sector marshal service looking to simplify the process of asset recovery. When you say working with countries around the world, where are you spending most of your time today? Like, where is the biggest concentration of interest on digital asset recovery? Offshore jurisdictions, the Caribbean, Africa, the EU as well. So it's a little bit all over the place, which is exciting and fun. Yeah. So you're spending a lot of time on a plane, I would imagine. Yes. A lot of travel, which I also love. I'm curious, like you mentioned back in 2013, obviously Bitcoin was the big thing. And then you saw kind of a widening of the aperture as other cryptocurrencies came into play. I would imagine things like ETH became much more significant. I'm curious today how much you're seeing things like NFTs, which probably present their own challenges in terms of recovery. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we see mostly with the EU or the US. It's not something that we seized as frequently in some of those other jurisdictions that are maybe working their first crypto case or just starting to get involved in crypto. It's still a little kind of beyond what those jurisdictions are identifying for seizure. I'm curious, you've mentioned a couple times the platform that the team is building. What actually is that? Maybe if you can answer in the shape of like how you would work with a a government that calls you up and says, hey, Joanna, we need some help. We've got some really complex things that we want to seize here. Like what happens from that point forward? So we handle the entire seized asset process from end to end. Our tech, from a crypto perspective, we're integrated with Fireblocks and several other custodian options like a Fidelity digital assets, a Coinbase, and we work with a variety of different exchanges. So we're agnostic on that front. We'll be flexible and work with whatever the country deems is an acceptable platform to use or to not use. And I think one of the key differences is that we don't offer retail. So everything we do has a court order nexus to it, whether that's an insolvency practitioner, a bankruptcy proceeding, or it's a government agency that's looking for crypto and physical asset storage. Everything has to have a court order nexus to it. And as far as I know, that's not available anywhere in the world. Why the court order nexus? It seems like there's lots of people out there who have had, you know, fallen victim to a scam or something else. I would imagine they call you all the time. I know we get lots of calls here at Chainalysis from individuals who say, help, I've lost my crypto, but it sounds like you're not focused on serving that audience. Yeah, absolutely. We've never really serviced the retail customers for crypto, but we did do a lot of victim support when I first started at Asset Reality. And we shifted away from that to keep our focus on the professional services and on building our platform. And we realized if we can focus on supporting jurisdictions with infrastructure, long term, that will empower them to be able to work those types of cases more efficiently. If the government has the capacity to do the work from investigations to management and liquidation then they're in a position to help with victim support. And that's especially true of these overseas jurisdictions, many of whom lack that infrastructure. So even if you were to send something over to them from a victim that lost something, you're not going to get any information back if they don't have the infrastructure up front to help you. I can imagine going upstream in serving that infrastructure is actually really important. It enables 
law enforcement and the rest of government to do their job much more effectively if they've got the right tools. I'm curious, kind of, what's the perspective of the Financial Action Task Force when it comes to asset recovery? Like, I, I know my experience, FATF has done lots of work around anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing. Have they started to look at this space and give guidance to countries on, on how they should develop their program? So one of the stats that we see quoted a lot from FATF is a UNO DC statistic stating that countries intercept and recover less than 1% of global illicit financial flows. And that's a pretty scary statistic when you think about it, especially because that statistic came out almost a decade ago at this point. So it's almost like pre-crypto forfeitures and the world really getting involved in crypto asset forfeiture. So I'd imagine at this point that 1% could even be a lot lower now. And countries do need to do a better job with it. And that's what we're planning to help them do. FATF highlights seizing expeditiously, which is what our app can do by helping generate a crypto wallet address. And I think it's a great focus that FATF has because it's really needed worldwide when you look at the lack of infrastructure and those scary statistics like a 1% recovery. I think FATF is going to be focusing on it a lot more in the next few years to come. They've already said, according to Rec15, that countries and financial institutions should identify and assess for money laundering and terrorist financing risks and that they're going to be focused on it by making sure these countries are developing new products to help combat those risks. This has led to the EU directive to have an asset management platform and it's also led to FATF stating they're going to produce another targeted update report focusing on the jurisdiction's progress. So who's complying, who's not complying and I think that follow-up comes from the fact that three quarters of jurisdictions were viewed as only partially or not compliant with those FATF requirements. Wow. That 1% statistic blows me away because I think the estimate is something like $2 trillion in in illicit finance. So 1% of a very, very big number. And your guess is it's actually gotten worse, not better since that statistic was formulated. Yeah, I'd love to see an updated statistic on that because I do think it's gotten a bit worse. And I hate to see that because I think that that's so much money that's being left in the hands of criminals that should be given back to the government and to victims of crime. You know, the saying goes, crime doesn't pay, but it sounds like in this case, maybe it does for some people, unless we can solve this problem. Yes. And I think we will. No one wants to get gray listed. We have seen countries go on the fat of gray list and come off the gray list, but that leads to just a whole set of consequences economically. If a country's gray listed, it's a decrease in international financial assistance, international financial aid due to de-risking. So I understand that countries want to focus on making sure that they're not part of that gray list or if they are already improving so they can come off it because that can be a huge hit to the economy. Yeah. You know, we've had some law enforcement professionals on the podcast in the past and and they've told some pretty fantastic stories about, you know, arresting a suspect and seizing a thumb drive or maybe another hardware wallet implementation and treating it like traditional evidence, right? Like putting it in a bag and throwing it in an evidence locker and then finding out much later that what they thought at the time contained a large amount of digital assets, it was gone by the time somebody came back around to it. And that story's always stuck with me because I imagine that is a fairly common practice. And I I feel like you might know this and can kind of guide on why that's a bad idea and what would be the right approach in that scenario. 
Yeah, unfortunately, that's something that we have definitely heard, especially as we work in countries that are just getting started with cryptocurrency. We hear either a lot of, I'll do like a training and I'll show a picture of a hardware device and I'll be like, you know, has anyone seen this before? Because some jurisdictions go, oh, we don't have crypto in our country. I'm like, okay, have you seen these before? And they're like, oh yeah, I've seen those like, you know, on a lot of different takedowns that I've been on and and cars we've pulled over. And it's like, okay, well, that was crypto. So (laughs) who who knows what was on it? But I've definitely had that exact scenario happen where people didn't understand you need to transfer the currency immediately. Not your keys, not your coins. If you're not controlling those private keys and you're not transferring the crypto to an agency controlled or, you know, a contractor agency controlled wallet right away, whatever you put in evidence and decided to check a year later is probably not going to be there. And we've heard that too, where people have said, I don't know what this guy was doing, but we went to go arrest him and he just like wouldn't stop sending this text message. Like, we had to like rip the phone out of his hands and it's like yeah he was giving the signal to everyone to go move all the assets like immediately what's the right approach i mean with your platform it sounds like you make it very easy to set up a new digital wallet that's controlled by the government how do you get a suspect to give up access you know that seed phrase to the hardware device like how does that process actually play out So a few different things happen. Sometimes the seed phrase is sitting out and it's easy to find. Sometimes the suspects are just willing to give it up. In cases where they're willing to give it up, it's usually because they're going to be facing a very stiff money judgment and they just realize that the gig is up. They either don't want to do as much time in jail, they want their money judgment paid, and they're just going to go ahead and comply at that point. So often you can form some sort of cooperative encouragement. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes. Yes. And then how does the digital assets typically get disposed of? You mentioned the platform plugs into a bunch of different trading venues. Is it like the auction process you described at Marshall's? Or is it a case where you just go and sell on the open market on a platform like Coinbase? The great thing about having a platform to manage the disposal process is having that variety of options and being able to get really competitive pricing. Mm. So we can ask around to a variety of different exchanges and see what's going to work best. And sometimes it's a case of not only are we liquidating an asset, but then we need to convert the fiat into a different currency to either British pounds or to the dollar or to the euro. So you're doing multiple steps in that liquidation. I'd say it's similar to the auction process in the sense that you expect there to be KYC and AML compliance and bidders need to be vetted. One of the things we focus on with countries when we help them develop their standard operating procedures is having those processes in place. So if you're going to hold an auction or you're going to liquidate cryptocurrency, how are you making sure that none of those bidders were the brother or the sister of the defendant? You don't want something being resold back to the defendant and his family. In some situations, you can only do your best. You know, it's out of your control what happens once that next person buys it. But doing that type of compliance check and just really asking around for the best price is important. I remember there used to be a time where in the U.S. at least, people would advertise these seized car auctions where you could go get a great deal on some luxury automobile that had been presumably seized from from some criminal somewhere. But I would imagine with digital assets, like Bitcoin is Bitcoin, no one really cares about the provenance. So you're looking to maximize the value of that, right? You want to you want to sell in such a way that you're getting market price in every case. Yeah, you want to be getting market price and you also want to make sure you're not affecting the market. This was true working on the liquidation of brokerage accounts 
and, and stock portfolios and also for crypto as well. You know, if you start affecting the market, then there's innocent people who had nothing to do with this crime that, yeah. you know, they're seeing everything take a hit in price. So you want to be careful not to have that happen. And a lot of the exchanges now have really sophisticated trading algorithms that make sure that doesn't happen. And you're also in control to stop or slow down the sale process if you do see the market slipping. So that's definitely an important consideration when liquidating. One of our most popular topics on this podcast over the last two years has been pig butchering, right? Mm -hmm. This sort of romance flavored scam that, you know, victims are often contacted out of the blue and then they're established some sort of ongoing relationship with the, the scammer. I know that you mentioned you had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with victims early in your career at Asset Reality. Like, how do you see that that type of scam resolving? Is it something where we can just raise the sophistication level of government? Or do we also need to establish some sort of protective solution for victims as well? Like, what, what are your thoughts there? So it's such a hard situation because there's so many of these scams. And when you look at IC3, which is the Internet Crime Complaint Center run by the FBI, you can see that cryptocurrency investment fraud has increased 183 percent in 2022. So we're looking at 2.57 billion dollars lost to investment scams. And that's just the number that has a USA nexus to it and just what was reported. And we know a lot of victims don't report because they're too embarrassed to. So one of the things I saw a lot of in these cases was the re-victimization of victims. And the first question I was always asked was, how do I get my money back? And they're asking that to a good trusting party. They're also asking that first question to any type of scammer who's just exploiting the fact that they're vulnerable and ready to pay some amount of money again to just have the problem solved. So I think I think part of the problem is education, just making sure people understand that there's a lot of red flags to look for if you're going to be speaking to a firm that claims they're going to help you with crypto asset recovery. It's education yeah. on all sides. In terms of victim education, you shouldn't be working with someone who's requesting a non-refundable payment up first. You shouldn't be working with someone who's guaranteeing your return. It's very difficult to get a return. And recovery litigation is very expensive. You also want to make sure someone's working with law enforcement. You cannot do this without law enforcement assistance. You still need a law enforcement agency to help you seize. And I'd say last and probably most importantly in is working with blockchain analytic companies, you know, making sure that asset recovery firm you're talking to, that they're working with a chain analysis in order to trace those token types and use some of the best technology available. And then on the government side, it's also education. It's making sure no one says, oh, I don't do crypto investigations or that stuff goes in the too hard pile. Like we don't take custody of that stuff. It's making sure that everyone's willing to pitch in and work those types of cases from the investigators to the prosecutors, everyone, every step of the way. If you've been unlucky enough to be a victim, it sounds like step one is, is get law enforcement involved as soon as you can. And then step two, be very wary of anyone promising that they can get all your money back and that they can solve the problem with just yet another payment because there's a good chance that they're actually running a scam as well. Absolutely. If you're a U.S. citizen, you should make sure you're reporting through IC3. And that's not to say that there aren't good crypto asset recovery firms out there and and good public sector divisions working on this. You just need to be leery and and be aware of the fact that it's probably going to be very expensive. If you look at some of the work Aaron West and Operation Shamwork are doing, it's really impressive on the pig butchering schemes and raising awareness to what they are and how to proceed if you've been a victim of one. Siberia also in, in the 
the private sector. They've been a great company that, that helps victims with these types of cases. Two former guests on the podcast, Aaron West and Nicola from Siberia. So perfect shout outs. I love it. Fantastic. Any other uh, <laughs> former friends of the podcast you'd like to plug while you're at it? <laughs> No, I'll leave it there for now. Different topic for you. I saw on your bio that you are an ambassador for the Association for Women in Crypto. They're doing some terrific work in the ecosystem. Maybe share with the audience a little bit about what, what the association does and what your role as an ambassador is all about. So I am the DC Regional Ambassador for Women in Crypto, and I've known Amanda for a long time from my DOJ days. She was in AUSA, and I was working at the Marshall Service. So I was really, really excited when she launched this initiative. And I believe it actually started with her days at Chainalysis and starting to interview women leaders in the industry, and then it it snowballed into the Women in Cryptocurrency Association. And the idea is it, it helps bring different voices and diverse ways of thinking that can help build better solutions. So we want to ensure that the future of digital finance and innovation is built with equality for women. And I do see sometimes people ask, you know, is is there going to be pushback on some of the events if you're like pushing for women to be a part of it? And I think when you come to these events, it's, it's really benefit of the doubt. A lot of the organizers of conferences, they don't always know how to find qualified women speakers. Like sometimes they are hosting a conference, but they're not necessarily in the crypto space. They're they're planning an event. So whereas you or I might know like a lot of great speakers off the top of our head, I think sometimes it's just knowing where to look. So one of the initiatives that we're doing in Women in Crypto is we are launching a global speaker directory of qualified women who are willing to speak on panels or willing to speak solo at conferences. Awesome. Yeah, I think so too. And and I think it's especially fun for me to work with just women right out of college who need mentorship, who are maybe a little intimidated by speaking on a panel or by doing a podcast, or they just need some help and some reassurance that they know how to do it and and do a dry run with someone. So we love to offer any type of mentorship opportunity as well. Yeah, so I, I really, really enjoy my work on that. And I expect us to be rolling out a lot more events this year and next year as well. I was amazed at how many people joined the association over the last year. Not at all surprised, just like really excited about it. And now I think we're into that next phase of really making sure we're holding events and a variety of great events, whether that's, you know, a happy hour in the evening, a crypto and coffee session in the morning, or tacking on like a network event pre or post conference, just to make sure everyone can kind of get to know each other a little bit better. It sounds like an amazing organization, love the mission and the focus on bringing more women into the industry. If listeners want to find out more, where should they go? What's how do we follow along? I would follow along by going to the Women in Crypto LinkedIn page. And you can also go to womenincrypto.org. That's the website. Highly recommend you join. We also have events that you don't need to be a member to be a part of. So if you just want to come check it out, see what we're all about, we're happy to host as well if it's something you want to just think about before you go right in. Amazing. We will link to both of those in the show notes so people can follow along. Last question for you. What should we expect coming up in 2024 for you? And, and asset reality. Well, speaking of FATF from earlier, the FATF effect from 2019 and that push towards these better systems to regulate virtual assets, that led to such an explosion in your field and, and the blockchain analytic companies. And now I'm really excited to see that asset recovery is this next focus. And we're super excited to be the world's first company dedicated to this sector with software and services to make it easier to seize assets. So I think the thing I'm most excited about is our platform launch in April, which 
which is absolutely perfect timing to be at Chainalysis Links and have a booth there. So I really hope everyone stops by our booth at Links because I'd love to show our demo of how we can seize assets in under 60 seconds and have them on the platform and show how we run reports and just how the whole platform works. I can't wait. I will be there. I maybe will be the first person at the booth to see that demo, but I'm sure many of our listeners will uh, line up behind me and look forward to seeing you in April. Fantastic. I can't wait. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ian. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed what you heard today, do me a favor. Open up your podcast app, rate the show, give us a review, and tell us what you liked. Even better, you can share the podcast with your friends. And of course, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode. Last thing before you go, on February 20th, the UK's National Crime Agency led an operation alongside the US Department of Justice to disrupt LockBit. They've been one of the most prolific ransomware as a service groups operating in the last few years. This international law enforcement collaboration worked together to seize servers and public facing websites that were integral to LockBit's operations. And they've actually obtained decryptor keys for victims to be able to recover their data without having to pay a dime. Additionally, the DOJ has announced charges against two Russian nationals acting as LockBit affiliates, and OFAC has sanctioned them, along with adding several crypto addresses to the SDN list. To read the full story, including details of LockBit's past activity, head down to the show notes.